Written on the pages of the great book of nature lies a truth so profound that it has beckoned men and women throughout the ages to seek its wisdom. We will continue this quest and study many stories of humanity as we search for this light. On this journey, we will examine philosophy, religion, and science to uncover the hidden mysteries behind myth and legend using the symbols of universal Freemasonry. Welcome to Legends of the Craft. Welcome back to Legends of the Craft. I'm here with Brother Axel Savari. Today's episode is about Sir Thomas More and specifically his book, Utopia. Something written about 1530s. It's been a classic, and you know, a lot of history students around the world have to read it. It's an excellent book, not easy to read because it's 500 years old, but we believe it has a very important part to play in, in Western civilization, its development, and Freemasonry. Yeah, um, Utopia is considered uh, one of the pivotal works in Western literature. Like it really, it introduces, or rather reintroduces a whole literary category. It kind of follows on from Sir Francis Bacon's The New Atlantis. It's kind of in the same as um, Plato's Republic and that kind of tradition of, you know, imagining places that don't necessarily exist as a way to comment on your current society's problems and its possible solutions. Before we get into Sir Thomas More and his specifically his utopia, let's give you a backdrop of what's going on in Europe. So Henry VIII has become king of England. Everything is Catholic. There's no Protestant Reformation. It's just a right around the corner. It's a couple decades away. And the king, Henry VIII, is um, he's a young man. So, you know, usually you see images of him being Big, sort of fat, fat and old. guy. Yeah. Yep. He's actually he's a sportsman, was riding horses, playing games, hunting. Um, but he's not probably that bright as a king. And he kind of wants to play more than work. So his his counselors are the people kind of running the country. He is he's married to Catherine of Aragon. Spanish queen and they have a kid uh, but it's a daughter he doesn't have the son that he's wanted and as a result he kind of he he falls out of you know he falls out of love with with Catherine of Aragon and wants to get another wife but this isn't allowed in the Catholic Church because you know divorce is not a good thing but nevertheless he sends a request to um, to the Vatican which it's rejected. And the result is that he does something called the English Reformation. And this is when England splits from Catholicism. They form the Church of England, Anglicanism basically, which in, in, in almost every respect is still Catholic. There's just no Pope, right? And so this is sort of the upheaval that's taking place. And he really takes to heart this idea of the divine right of kings. It's absolutism, that... He is king because God put him there. And that kings are put on earth because God wants them to rule. So he doesn't see why he has to report to the Pope. He thinks he can do whatever he wants. And so he names himself the supreme head of the Church of England. And, and through all this religious turmoil begins what will be literally a couple of hundred years of conflict in Europe where lots of people will die because some people are Catholic, some people are Anglican, some people are Protestant. And then from Protestantism you get... You know, the Anabaptists, Lutherans, the Calvinists, and this religious explosion of ideas, though good in some ways, results in a lot of conflict and bloodshed. So he ends up marrying Anne Boleyn. I think a lot of you know, our listeners probably, you, you probably heard this story. And that's where Sir Thomas More comes in. So Sir Thomas More is his chancellor at this time. But he's very Catholic, and he doesn't want to separate from the Vatican. And what happens is that he's, he's asked to, do, to take an oath, the oath of supremacy, which is that, you know, the, the oath of supremacy is something that declared King Henry as the head of the church. But Henry loves Sir Thomas More. It was, he, Sir Thomas More was his tutor, you know, as he was growing up. So he kind of lets him go on this one. But then later, a couple years later, I think it's 1534, uh, there's the oath of succession because he's getting married to Anne Boleyn and he wants Anne Boleyn's children 
to be proper successors. And this is, you know, this is a, this is a whole fight with Parliament. We're not going to get into any of those details. But again, Sir Thomas More, you know, who's you know very aligned with his principles, uh, refuses to acknowledge this. Uh, he's brought up on bribery charges, which they are acquitted. He's acquitted of because they couldn't find anything. So it was just false charges by the other ministers of of the king. But eventually he is executed. He's, he's imprisoned in the Tower of London. And um, because he refuses to sign the oath of succession, he goes to the chopping block. And he gets his head chopped off. And his famous last words were, I die the king's good servant, but God's first. And that kind of sets up this arena here of Sir Thomas More and Henry VIII. Yeah, it's it's actually it's it's quite interesting that that kind of like last moment of principle that he has because I, I think that's the very reason that Henry VIII admires him because he had been his tutor in, in his youth and a lot of what Henry did kind of know comes a lot from the thought of Thomas More and we'll see as we get into Utopia that he was a very very capable thinker like and and somebody that definitely went beyond the bounds of you know, just repeating accepted orthodox theology at the time. He was definitely thinking about these questions. Um, but again, always had loyalty to his principles, which is eventually what did him in. He's a humanist, which so Thomas More is kind of a contradiction. He kind of reminds me of, of Thomas Jefferson a little bit. Um, because So he's very Catholic, doesn't want the church to split, then at the same time, he's a humanist. So he believes in the power of humanity. He believes in the power of human beings to overcome their problems. And so he, in a sense, he's rejecting medieval thought. He, he's rejecting the idea that see, only the church can solve all problems. But then at the same time, he's very loyal to the Catholic Church. So we have a contradiction here in this man. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think it's important to mention, like, you know, living 500 years after Sir Thomas More existed, it's easy for us to forget the kind of cultural and social context that he existed in that is like so far removed from our experience. These these people at the time, the common person at, at Sir Thomas More's time, literally everything in the world happened because God ordained it to be so, right? Like your wife dies in childbirth, it's because God wanted her dead at childbirth. There's an earthquake, God wanted to send you an earthquake. God like God controls every minute detail of your life. And so to to, you know, humanism as a kind of a thought form for us now is not really so far beyond the pale. It's, it's pretty standard that people believe that human beings are capable of doing great things because, you know, human beings are pretty awesome and stuff. That is a pretty radical concept for the 15th and 16th century to say that, you know, hum- humans on their own are responsible for their destiny and not everything is preordained by God. Nevertheless, though, he loved the Catholic Church mm-hmm. and he did not accept England splitting away from this universal religion. He believed that it should engulf the world, you know, that every, every corner of the world should be Catholic. But perhaps we'll make more sense of this as we get into his writings on utopia. Well, and there's one, one more thing that, you know, kind of defines the context of, of Sir Thomas More in Europe at the time generally, that another thing that's kind of missing from our daily lives, at least here in, in, the, in the West, is just the constant presence of conflict and violence in their lives. Like in Europe, like Europe has been at war for a thousand years at this point since the fall of the Roman Empire. At very like it's not a constant state of war, but you would grow up knowing about wars and, and, and the kind of and a student of history like Thomas More would be acquainted with the fairly petty and some oftentimes religious reasons for which they start. And and you know, I think the foundation or one of the foundations of his faith in, in, in Catholicism was its ability to bring people together and to hold them united in the face of ethnic or, you know, personal differences that at least they had the universal church and, and Jesus Christ and, and the belief in the one true Catholic religion. Well, I mean, the, the empire had fallen. The Roman Empire had collapsed, and it was the church that kept everybody together. Yeah, there was conflict. I mean, there were the, you know, we call them the Dark Ages, right? You know, mm-hmm. medieval history. But the church still kept everything together. And I think the Catholic Church does not get enough credit in this. You know, mm-hmm. usually I hear today people just bagging on religion, specifically Catholic, the Catholic Church. They're always saying that Christians are more respons- they're responsible for killing more people than anybody on the planet. I simply don't believe that. I think that's nonsense. Most of the conflicts that you find in Europe are land disputes that are done in the name of religion. But 
had it been a different religion, those disputes will probably still have taken place. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, there was an arbitrator. There was the Pope, there were cardinals, there was a place of safety of impoverished people at the churches, and they were all given equal access to to mass and to you know to the tools of the church. And I think that's important because you know in in older religions beyond Christianity, sometimes religion was only for rich people. It wasn't for poor people, people that could afford the sacrifices and mm -hmm. all that. And here you have a church that allows the poor into its doors for worship once a week. Well, and I, what you made a really interesting point about the importance of the Pope, too, is that there was a universal moral appeal within Catholicism. Like, like two uh, sides that, you know, disputed something. Well, at least they were both Christian and they would both listen to the Pope, right? As, as Or at least, you know have the social pressure of having to listen to the Pope, at yeah. least in form and ceremony. You know, they're still kings. They kind of see themselves as powerful individuals. But at least there was always the kind of like the possibility of an appeal to their common morality that was shared in Christianity. And and I, I agree with you. I don't think it gets enough credit for what it was able to do in terms of keeping society together. Well, in the light of the monasteries is another thing because the the works of the Greeks and the Romans were as best as they could be preserved in the monasteries that were given sort of free range to maintain these older works and to copy them and preserve them and to study them. Mm -hmm. I don't think people realize that the Catholic Church is, is very heavily influenced by Platonism, for example. Uh, the works of Plato you'll find um, entrenched in the writings of Thomas Aquinas and, and St. Augustine, for example, and you find these platonic ideas, which we'll kind of discuss later mm -hmm. when we get into utopia, I think, in the writings of Thomas More. Well, I think that's a perfect segue because there's no doubt that utopia definitely borrows from Plato's Republic and, and the discussion about Atlantis and the idea of an ideal society. Like, that's definitely in the kind of literary vein that he's following along with. No, absolutely. And, and, and one more point to what you said earlier about people, this, this deterministic model where people kind of, you know, everything was the will of God. That's what we see opening up at this period with humanism. And humanism, I think, is the gateway drug, so to say, to the Protestant Reformation. Mm -hmm. So this idea that humans are more capable than has been uh, previously thought opens up the avenue towards this reformation, which there'll be lots of different ideas. But the ideas split between two camps. This idea of a deterministic model, like you get the Calvinists, for example. Uh, they, everything was determined. The, mm -hmm. the, the number of people that were going to be saved is determined uh, before the creation, which leads you to the question of well, why do anything if, if, if everything's already been set in stone. And then you have the... the the agency, the free agency camp, which they're saying, no, we, we have the agency in order to do things. And, and we find this argument today in Christianity between uh, you know, evangelicals and Catholics because Catholicism preaches good works, you know, gets you to heaven. And evangelicalism, at least a lot of strains of it, it's grace, right? Mm -hmm. It's your faith. It's your belief in Jesus Christ mm -hmm. that gains you eternal salvation. I believe Sir Thomas More was one of these uh, these these philosophers at the time that was like, no, it's good works. Mm -hmm. Grace is important. Grace follows good works. Yeah. But without good works, your grace is empty. Grace is bestowed upon those who do good works, basically. Exactly. Like, like unless you're willing to, you know, accepting, you know, Christ as the Savior, as I guess kind of seen as the first step, but then you have to actually like be Christ-like. You have to act like Christ. Otherwise, like, just saying that you've accepted him isn't really good enough. You actually have to demonstrate that you believe this in your actions. You have to demonstrate value. You have to demonstrate value. And, and he certainly demonstrated value right until the final moment of his life. So what does this got to do with Freemasonry? Well, this is an interesting period because we have the operative Masons working in England. And they're building cathedrals. They're building uh, palaces. They're building large buildings of construction. And Sir Thomas More, uh, in his Utopia, will actually reference masonry. You know, masons, you know, mm -hmm. it was one, it was yeah. one of the trades done on the uh, the island of Utopia. Um, but I think his writings are were very influential to developing speculative Freemasonry because his book, which is about no place, nowhere, mm -hmm. nevertheless sets out this sort of idyllic society, and we find the same concept in Freemasonry, which is. How do we form an ideal society? 
is that even possible? So I think his writings influenced speculative Freemasons. Well, I think, too, it kind of introduces as a genre and and as an intellectual exercise something that is definitely practiced in Freemasonry, which is like built in, at least in speculative Freemasonry, which is like building things that don't actually physically exist, but that still have a tangible effect on the world. Utopia has had a tangible effect on the world, even though it is no place and it exists as a literary device. It has inspired people. It has changed the way people think about society, what's possible in society. I mean, it was it was a radical reimagining of society for what was then the prevailing orthodoxy in you know the late medieval kind of early English Renaissance, and and it's a practice that has become commonplace at least in you know modern and especially universal co-masonry is this idea of like. You know, there's physical building and then there's intellectual, mental and spiritual building that like everything that we do should be building towards something. It, sh- it should be part of a kind of cohesive plan that, that creates something that even though we can't, you know, get inside and walk around in it has the same effect as a great cathedral or a big you know, piece of social engineering. That's the temple made not of hands eternal in the heavens. I mean, that's a biblical reference, but really this is a platonic idea, which is you know, Plato taught that there were images and there were forms or ideals. So the realm of ideals and forms was this place that was eternal. It's not here on the planet because it doesn't die, it doesn't decay. There, there, it's where real stuff comes from. And so everything here on the planet is a is a mimicry. You and I, you know, this this desk, this mic, are mimicry of of the realness of these eternal forms or ideals. And so utopia, this place that he imagined perhaps is is the ideal of humanity it's not the present image of civilization and, mm-hmm. and it's because what we have is imperfect because in this platonic idea nothing can be perfect it's impossible for there to be perfection on earth because matter decays mm-hmm. everything decays ideas decay thoughts decay everything on this planet in this universe that's physical and tangible will decay eventually the only thing that's eternal are these ideals or these forms. And perhaps utopia is his way of trying to put to pen something that is the ideal. But even by doing so, it itself is imperfect. So let's get into the story of utopia itself. It, it takes the form of, uh, you know, it's very similar to the Socratic dialogues um, that Plato wrote to kind of flesh out ideas about the perfect society. So, you know, it, in particular, it makes me think of, uh, of the Critias, where he first describes the society of Atlantis and how it functions. Utopia takes the form of a conversation of Sir, Tom- Sir Thomas More and his friend Peter Giles with this character Raphael Hythlodius, I think is how you say it, but I'm, I'm not very good. Hythlodius. Hythlodius, yeah. um, which is kind of its own play. That's the other thing to bear in mind about Utopia is that it was written when scholars and people that could read had a great understanding of Greek and Latin, and he's constantly making these puns and references that are kind of lost on our minds now, but would have been very apparent to, We're the, pretty edu- stupid. to the educated reader at that time, which, you know, there weren't many, but the ones that could do that really kind of got all this wordplay that is very hard for us to grasp now. But it takes place as a conversation between him and his friend and this guy, Raphael. And there's kind of a connection there to the archangel, Raphael. Yeah, so Raphael in, in the book, I, he's connected with the, the adventures of um, the navigator Vespucci, who, you know, it's, it's, Amer- it's Amer- Amerigo Vers- America Vespucci. Vespucci. Yeah. So this is a guy that, that the Americas is named after, and he was an explorer that went down the coast of the Americas and all that. This is around 1507. So in the book, it's sort of, it's, I think it's they make reference that he is one of these like sailors or somebody mm-hmm. that's with Vespucci as he's going to the new world. And so he's telling the story of having found this place called Utopia. Yeah. Now Raphael is also um in Christianity is an archangel. Now you don't find him in the Bible. Uh you find him in the book of uh Tabot or Tibet. Tobit. Tobit. Okay, Tobit. <laughs> Toby. Toby Good. Uh, <laughs> so he's in this book, which, you know, it's, it's, it's not that it's not, it's not heretical writings, but it's mm. not part of the canonical Bible. And there's this idea that they're talking to an angel, basically. Mm-hmm. That this angel is giving them this information. So I think this, again, connects us to the Platonic um, theory here that 
this is an ideal. This is something that's heavenly. This is something that God is communicating to them, right? Well, and and more with his extensive knowledge of Greek would have known that angel in Greek meant messenger, that they were communicators from the from the spiritual plane. So that so you can kind of look at this as, you know, Thomas More's framing of a communication from the from the higher realms. And and you know, you were telling me right before we got started that Thomas More had all, you know, he was a Catholic, but he had all these kind of like ancillary practices that aren't really you know, what we think of as Catholicism every day, that he would go into these dark rooms and meditate for hours at a time. And, you know, it's possible that he was kind of like stretching the possibilities of prayer and meditation to include, you know, maybe some kind of like uh, astral experience or something like that. Some people believe that, and and we'll definitely get into that when we we talk about Manly P. Hall's sort of (laughs) take on on some of this. But nevertheless, so the, the, the book one of Utopia is, is him talking to his buddies here. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sir Thomas More is talking to his buddies. And they're basically sort of like picking apart Europe. They're yeah. like, these are all the problems. And, and what they, they, they do identify as a major problem is that uh, same argument you find today among people, that the rich are too rich and the poor are too poor. And yeah. there's this income inequality. And it's something they try to solve in their discussions uh, and which Raphael communicates to them is is found in Utopia as an answer. Isn't it so funny that you know you look at literature from five or six hundred years ago, and it's just people having the same problems that we have today, the same discussions in the same ways, coming up with the same solutions, just couched in different phrases. But we've literally just been arguing about the same things forever. You've been we've been arguing the same things, but people live objectively. A thousand times better. The poorest person today is still better off than 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 the kings uh, at the in, time. In some ways, in some ways, in terms sure. of access to sanitation. I mean, we're not talking about homeless people today, but people yeah. that are, you know, in the poverty level still have access to more, uh, you know, sanitation, hygiene, mm-hmm. um, good medicine, food. good yeah. food, more calories mm-hmm. uh, per day than many, you know, of the nobility of five hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't mean that we're saying that it's okay. <laughs> society is perfect by any stretch, yeah. But we still have to make the historical comparison, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So in book two, uh, Raphael actually gets into telling his tale of the society that he experienced when he was exploring these places as part of uh, a Vespucci or, or a Vespucci-like character that you know he went with. So Utopia is an island in the New World, right? It, it's uh, highly settled. There's 54 cities. It's got a, an a internal roadways. It's it's very highly developed. Its masonry is very good. Like their and but more importantly, their social structure has been highly developed. Now, Moore says that they're surrounded by neighbors that are also kind of range from completely primitive tribes to semi-developed civilizations around Utopia. So for Thomas More, the New World was actually populated, or at least in this telling of Utopia there was already a pop, a human population in the new world. It wasn't just this kind of pristine um, virgin land. That well, I think he's referring to the Native Americans. Yes. That, you know, he knew they were there. I mean, mm-hmm. this, this is, you know, the 1530s. And so they're aware of these different tribes, um, which, you know, this idea of like today's racism didn't exist with 500 years ago. It was just beginning to develop. Um so they just viewed them as people. They didn't know who they were. Mm-hmm. And the ideas of them being savages was only now beginning to develop. Yeah. Um, after, you know, Columbus had gone there. And now you had multiple expeditions of, of, of conquistadors from Spain conquering various parts of, of, of South and Central America. But the English were a little different in their colonization of the Americas. They didn't go in and killed everybody. Their, their idea was to... to cohabitate mm-hmm. with the Native Americans. And yes, I know, I mean, there were incidences, and I'm not trying to defend England here by any means, but if you compare the English to the Spaniards or the Portuguese, mm-hmm. they were quite benevolent. Yeah. Uh, and, and the French were as well. The French, uh, their purpose was instead of permanent colonies, their, their purpose was to do trading uh, with the Native Americans. So the English had a very different mindset when it came to the New World than did the Spaniards or Portuguese, who were essentially conquerors and slavers. Mm-hmm. So within this new, this populated new world that he describes is kind of at its center, um, you know, civilizationally speaking, is Utopia. Um, it's an island with this natch. It's a like a crescent moon island, and and actually, what's interesting is, is in the book he says that they they actually separated themselves 
from the peninsula that they were a part of, that it, that it was the conqueror Utopos and his army that dug this big canal basically mm-hmm. between um, where Utopia is now and the mainland that they were connected to, knowing that this kind of like isolationism would keep them Secession. safe geographically. Yeah. Secession. <laughs> they, they seceded <laughs> geographically. Um, and it's a crescent moon island with this big natural calm harbor that there basically is their kind of center of inter-island trade. Um, but like I said, it's, it's very developed and it's very regimented. Every town has exactly the same 6,000 households. Every town is constructed on the same grid pattern. The buildings are identical. The squares are identical. The plazas are, are identical. The uh, agricultural kind of like suburbia around them is identical. Every single town and, and residents are, are kind of interchangeable. They move, I think, every 10 years from one city to the next and everybody just gets a new house, but it's exactly like the house that they just left. So there's no private property. Mm-hmm. So this is a key point here. Um, you know, 17th, 18th century socialists will really dig this Oh, they point. love this book, yeah. Um, but there's no private property. So like you said, they could sort of circulate houses every 10 years. So you're not mm-hmm. meant, you don't live in one place. You move around. But all the housing is essentially the same. I'm not sure they, they're identical. Like They look exactly the same like some sort of like Soviet-style like replication system. But they're, they're basically designed in such a way um, that they're the equal like number like it's equal square footage mm-hmm. you know and sizing nobody gets anything bigger or smaller yeah. but, the, but the families do kind of like set it up in their own way so mm-hmm. this, this isn't like you know brutalism it's certainly not brutalism but it is a form of kind of like communal living that stresses the importance of you know not putting yourself through property above you know your fellows and another way that they do this is that your occupation is kind of like determined by the needs of the society as well everybody instead of military service they go through a period of agricultural service two years i think yeah two years i don't know if they go back and forth every two years but it's at least two years that they have to serve and uh they go in these and thomas more lived for a time in monastery so he modeled at least I think the agricultural part after life in the monasteries where you had 20 men, 20 women, and they would go and serve in these kind of like, you know, collective farms um, for their for their two years before being cycled back into city life. But they were, you know, everybody was fed together. They all worked, you know, to, to send the food into the cities. And, and that way kind of everybody has the same share of everything. So there's no kind of like internal uh, conflicts created by anybody hoarding any goods because that's basically impossible but you don't have money mm-hmm. so there's warehouses with food and wine and those type of things and you know you request what you need yeah. and you're given what you need and but everybody works and everybody circulates and and, and outside the two the two-year cycle um of agriculture then you know you would pick another trade like or you could oh, go like back masonry. if you if you liked it you could go back you voluntarily. could but you otherwise you could do masonry or you mm-hmm. could do you know blacksmithing you know some other sort of trade that you could specialize but you you didn't do it permanently yeah. you switched out which I, I think is a really interesting idea because we live in a society today that's very specialized mm-hmm. where you're expected to do the same thing forever and I think that makes people go crazy well and and you're also part of that is like you know you're expected to get like hyper involved in whatever it is that you've chosen and like the idea of flexibility within that path is is kind of like you know frowned upon in the sense that you know we look at people that kind of bounce from one job to another as not having really any roots whereas like you know the height of of professional perfection is to like get a phd in something and just be like a complete master of this one little slice of a field whereas this you know non-specialized kind of like um, jack of all trades, but without the negative connotations, that kind of existed in the medieval world because you know life changed in seasons back then. Like there was a time like blacksmiths weren't always needed, right? In times of war or in times of of building a city. No, no, no. no I, I see you frowning at yeah. me, but, but I'm like, but like what I'm saying is like markets change depending on the movements of the society. So sometimes you'd need more farmers than you'd need blacksmiths. And people were able to like change between those careers. That's what I'm saying. I mean, of course, there was always a, a need for the shaping of metal. I know what you're saying. I don't know if I totally agree. I mean, blacksmiths were always in high demand because so few people knew those type of traits. That's what you had to you had to apprentice and mm-hmm. become a journeyman and you know become a master of these traits. So um, I agree. I mean, I think you're right. Seasonally, like mm-hmm. not everybody was doing the same thing every day for 365 days yes. a year. Absolutely. Uh, even even the people in agriculture weren't. 
I mean, there was a time for harvest. There was a time of planting, and there's there's in winter you don't do anything. You just hang out um, and 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 wait for the spring to come. So I agree there, but I think in these 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 specialty traits, I think the difference was is that you know in medieval Europe everybody was part of the army. You know, mm-hmm. when your when your lord called you to arms, you all went to arms. Yeah. Now the blacksmiths would go and probably be working on weapons for the army, but they would go along with the army. And this this idea of um, you could be called to service at any time is not something we have anymore because we don't have conscription today. Yeah, you know, our armies are volunteer armies now. We haven't had conscription since Vietnam, and that was still limited. It wasn't like everybody was conscripted to go to Vietnam. You know, what is interesting though is that the where you do find specialization is in the um in the academics and in the I think in the priesthood. The the priests and the scholars and they're kind of intermixed, those are selected by the town elders. It'd be because and and really everything in in each of these identical cities, well, you know, similar cities is run by a, a system of districts who are presided over by um, either a priest or like a kind of like an elder type figure that runs everything in his district. And those people will like, they'll find the bright children and they'll select them for a life of like just pure academic undistracted study. But even when you were saying before about, you know, how there's like the warehouses of common goods, it wasn't like you just went in there and picked out what you wanted for dinner. Like your district ate together. And and and, all, and if like there were some sick or infirm people, then they would go in a household together. But like there was a there was a common meal. You, you know, you didn't have to go, but everybody kind of like was centered around being very involved in their kind of like subsection of the community. The same goes with um, their former government. So they basically had like a republic, and there was a prince that ruled for life, but they could be removed if they were a tyrant mm-hmm. or you know they were incapacitated. But thirty houses formed like a, like a little district, mm-hmm. and they would they yep. would they would elect one of their own to go to uh, like a like a like a regional council and so forth. And then finally, there would be a group of representatives uh, having come all the way down from these thirty households that would elect the prince for life. So yes, there was a prince, or you know, even you call it a king, you want to, but they were an elected king. So this is a pretty novel idea for Europeans in the fifteen thirties because they're saying, look. We need a more, you know, this, mm-hmm. the utopia is a Republican style of government, very similar to America, because in America, it's the same way, frankly. Mm-hmm. We elect um, people on a county level, and then from the county to a state level, and from a state level to a federal level. Mm-hmm. So in, in some ways, America is a copy of utopian Republican government. And I forget exactly the, the word he uses, but the uh, the utopian word for like their parliamentary assembly that they have, like every three years or whatever it is, it's really funny. It's like no progress or no point or something like like the word that he uses in Greek means like basically nothing gets done at these places. Like I forget exactly what it is, but all these these this uh, gathering is like they have so little to disagree about. That they're basically just like, is the plan working? Yeah, the plan's working. Okay, all right, let's See go you back. In three years. We'll go back home now. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's how government should work. Frankly, I mean, going mm-hmm. back to our anarchist episode, um, this resembles an anarchy in many ways, mm-hmm. in which everybody's working together, but power has been decentralized, even to the point that, and this is very <clears throat> advanced here, women are considered equal in mm-hmm. utopia. Uh, they're even priests. I was going to say in society religions. and religion, um, and and the religion is an interesting part where Christianity had only recently been introduced to utopia. So you have moon worshippers and sun worshippers and planet worshippers and ancestor worshippers, and you even had monotheists like in in the likes of like uh, like the Mithraic mysteries, I mm-hmm. believe. Yeah. But there were all these different religions, and there's freedom of religion in utopia. Everybody mm-hmm. can believe what they want. They even tolerated atheists. They thought they were stupid. Yeah, they thought they were ridiculous. absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, uh, but but they were permitted. So you, just just to stop here before we get out of hand here, Masonically, we're seeing a lot of ideas. Mm-hmm. We're seeing this idea of freedom of religion, which is a tenet in Freemasonry. We're seeing the idea, at least in Co-Masonry, of the equality of the sexes. We're seeing the idea that the resources of the lodge are for the good of everyone in the lodge. Mm-hmm. And in terms of the Republican style of government, 
Masonry is formed exactly in the same way. Mm-hmm. So in most Masonic jurisdictions, there's sort of the lodge level, there's sort of a district, a provisional level, and it moves up to the Grand Lodge or, or the Supreme Council. And there's representation that goes all the way to the top. And in terms of the Scottish Rite, there's this most sovereign grand commander who is elected for life. It's ad vitam in Latin. Um, and that person can be removed if they're tyrannic, but they're elected by the Council of the Supreme Council. Um, by the council, the supreme council, <laughs> by the members of the supreme council, excuse me, uh, to rule for life. So you have a very we're we're seeing a lot of masonic ideas. So now, did he get these ideas from masonry? I don't think so because masonry, modern Freemasonry, hadn't been formed. But I think these are concepts that inspired Freemasonry mm-hmm. uh, in in terms of its formation. Well, I think another kind of fundamental concept that you run across or throughout Utopia is this idea, and it's central to masonry is the idea of bringing uh, order to the chaos of the natural world. And this is, this is something we've definitely forgotten in our modern age because we're, we're so divorced in the way that we live now from having to contend with nature for our livelihood in a way that like, you know, 15th and 16th century England very much understood like a bad crop year means tens of thousands of people starve to death and like your society starts to, to collapse. Like we don't really like, you know, we still obviously get everything that sustains our life from nature, but it's not really a visceral part of our life as it was back then. And I think, you know, the, the whole kind of tradition of, of philosophers trying to best organize society actually comes out of the impulse to create order out of the chaos that we're all subjected to as human beings. Right? We're all born into a natural world that we don't control that just kind of buffets us back mm-hmm. and forth with all these things that, that are so beyond our ability to influence that kind of the history of civilization and the development of humanity is figuring out how to create order from the chaos that we're given. And that's what and the utopians are just people that are just better at, at figuring out how to do that or at least have figured out a system that works for them. Well, I think they, they've tapped into all the key points that would make a better society. Um, now, where does utopia come from? Where did they get these ideas? That's not explored in the book. It's not a very long book, by the way. Um, but you're right. You know, it's, it's, it's how do we create the best society? And, and the question that Sir Thomas More is putting forth in utopia is a question trying to be answered by a lot of groups. The Protestant Reformation is an attempt to make a better world. They just don't think it's the Catholic way. Mm-hmm. So they're trying to reinvent or invent ways by which to create a, a, a better earth, right? So that the plan of Christ can be fulfilled. And Utopia, again, it's, it, Christianity was just introduced, as, as Raphael's saying, and it's beginning to spread uh, throughout Utopia, mm-hmm. which is another interesting illusion there of maybe Utopia is a model of the ancient world. Maybe what Sir Thomas More is talking about is this uh, idyllic Roman, Greek, Egyptian, Babylonian civilization, the Persian civilization, all these ancient civilizations that uh, were romanticized at this time Mm -hmm. as being centers of civilization and prosperity and wisdom and, and science and rationality. And maybe Utopia... He's created a fictional world that represents all the ideas of the ancient world. You know, it's really interesting that you, you say that because, you know, we kind of think of, uh, you know, communism and socialism and those kind of models of, of organizing human society as relatively recent um, philosophies and innovation in human thought. But now that I think about it, like, you know, Rome distributed grain to its citizens and, and, and water and made sure that the material needs of life were, were provided for. Same in Egypt, like you were paid in food, essentially, for doing your work. And um, the harvest were kind of, you know, obviously there was kings and aristocrats and, and different classes. But essentially, like people were provided for in the most basic sense because they kind of understood that they had to do that in order to kind of like harness the power of the people in order to, you know, launch campaigns of war or build giant buildings or or build things back then. Mm -hmm. You had to make sure everybody was fed. You couldn't like, there was no market structure to rely on to create the power they needed to build these, these immense cities and, and do the things that they did. 
I mean, it goes back to the old libertarian question, you know, who's going to build the roads? <laughs> well, back then, it's, well, it was Rome. <laughs> yeah. It was Athens. It was Sparta. All, all roads led to Rome and were built by Rome. Um, so in, in Utopia, there, there's some other little interesting things. So they, the, the population had a very different consciousness. They didn't covet other people's um, the items that they held, their clothing. They, they, they weren't people of vanity. Mm-hmm. And the way they accomplished this, there was a couple interesting little things they did. One is that they gave things like gold and diamonds and jewelry uh, to little kids. And that was their toys, which you would then grow out of. So adults didn't want to play with diamonds and gold and rubies and whatever mm-hmm. sort of jewelry they had. It was something for it's childish. childish. Yeah. The other thing is that the criminals, um, they would wear gold chains. Well, so make the point first that like the universal punishment for criminal behavior in Utopia was slavery. Execution in rare cases, but it rarely got like as far as Raphael says. It rare people are very rarely executed. People are very rarely criminals in this society too. But those that are, uh, slavery is the punishment. Usually on like the second offense. Yeah, so you become a slave, and and then you got to wear this chain, which is gold, mm-hmm. and more so, people would piss. <laughs> In a pot of gold, yeah. you know, because, you know, back in this time, like you had pissing pots, basically, and that's you'd piss in it and then throw it out your window or, you know, on the side of the house. Well, you pissed in a pot of gold. Yeah. Why? Well, because it's not important. Yeah. So you wanted to devalue the gold and the silver as much as you could. I actually think this is one of the better ideas in the entire book that why do you know, why is a society we don't take the things that that are. Um, like gold and diamonds, these things of vanity, and why don't we make them unimportant as they should be unimportant? Because mm-hmm. why should we adorn ourselves with all these vanities? Yeah, and there's very much an emphasis in Utopia on valuing um, the things that actually have practical value in maintaining human life. So, you know, hard work is valued, agricultural products are valued, you know, the ability to repair things is, val- is, is valuable. Um, Adorn, like you said, adorning yourself with, with worthless ornaments to them is, is just kind of like it's something that children do, mm-hmm. right? And, and this is what um, kind of creates their diplomatic situation too because they have neighbors and they trade with their neighbors. And basically everything that is produced that is surplus because really all they care about is making sure that their people are fed and there's an adequate you know, cushion of supplies in case something bad happens. Everything beyond that, they trade away. And they keep the gold and the silver and the jewels that they get from that in warehouses, just like they would keep corn or, or bricks or whatever, to be used in times of war or uncertainty around their borders. So if their neighbors are at war with one another, they'll just fund both sides and make sure that every, like as far as everybody else is concerned, Utopia is not an enemy. And if, if some country wants to invade them or extort them for a ransom or whatever, they'll just give it to them. Because they they don't care about the gold and the silver. They're just like, all right, fine. Just we'll pay you to go away. Like, don't don't invade us. Here's here's more gold than you could possibly ever want to take from us, and none of your people will die. Just leave us alone. And that was their whole diplomatic model. That kind of ensured their security is like by not caring about all of the things that everybody around them was so covetous of. Yeah, the ultimate Switzerland, right? Yeah, exactly. trying to stay out of conflict. They did not like war. They mm-hmm. did not believe in violence. No. Another interesting point about Utopia is their view on sex. So premarital sex is illegal. And if you're caught doing it, then you're forced into celibacy for the rest of your life, mm-hmm. which I found to be a little drastic, frankly. <laughs> yeah. uh, but it, but you have to, I think you have to put this into perspective with, with this time where women um, in the 1530s in Europe are abused and uh, used by men... Um, as objects and so this view is very um i don't know what the right word is it's it's very sympathetic to women and it's trying to correct the imbalance of power Mm -hmm. essentially yeah because by by saying you can't have premarital sex that that the men can't take advantage of the women yeah you know, at, at the penalty of never having sex ever again. Yeah. And it, it's, again, it's it's one of those things that, you know, 500 years later, we have trouble comprehending just the 
um, the value that was not only the value that was placed on childbirth and its effects on society, but just how dangerous that was for the woman to, to, you know, have to undergo early pregnancies. It was like, you know, it was very easy that you could die in pregnancy or in childbirth. Like our, their state of medicine was not nearly as advanced as we have it now. So it's, it's not quite as easy as we have it now. So, so kind of like, abstaining from that to them or at least you know in thomas moore's view of them would have been like easing a social ill in a sense and like in in making sure that there was a little bit less chaos introduced into the society you know overall utopia is a a wonderful thought experiment and everybody should read this book if you haven't read it because it makes you think about what could the world be like Mm -hmm. and i think this is exactly what Karl marx was asking themselves um People like George Washington was asking themselves. Every government that came after this point was asking themselves, how can we make a world better than what we have? Mm -hmm. And how do we do this? Now, let's go back to our beginning because Thomas More is is presenting a model here of a place that isn't even Christian. And, you know, women being in the priesthood and, 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 and a lot of the ideas that you find in Utopia are not things practiced by the Catholic Church in the 1530s. Yet, Thomas More is very Catholic, and he's very upset with King Henry VIII for creating his own church. Mm -hmm. You would think that maybe Thomas More would see that as an opportunity for them to create utopia in England. But no, he condemns it. He doesn't go for it. He dies with his conviction of, of the Catholic Church being the most important entity on the planet. So, Brother Axel, why do you think he wrote Utopia? It's an interesting question because, you know, spoiler alert, it doesn't really spoil the story, but at the at the end of the book, he, he says, because he is a character in his own thought experiment here, I don't really believe much of this. But th- there's one or two ideas that, you know, might be a good idea for Europe, but I don't actually, like, I don't subscribe to all of these crazy things that uh, that Raphael has told me. And I think that part of it is what you said, is is to kind of, like, well, okay, so there's two there's two aspects to it. Maybe he doesn't actually believe it because of his Catholic convictions. The other part you have to contend with, because this did actually end up happening to him, is maybe he does believe more than he lets on, but he would be executed for saying that. Because eventually he is executed for his beliefs. So he has to kind of back up in his published works that, you know, maybe I don't believe because these are yeah. quite radical concepts. Yeah, this is just a fiction, you know? It's yeah. it's silly. Which I think kind of leaves it up to the reader to and, and and that's in my opinion what he was he was trying to create was something that was both contemporary to his social problems, but that addressed the fundamental human issues <laughs> that caused the recurrence of these problems over and over again. I, I don't think he expected utopia to solve all of humanity's problems but like you said earlier it's a it's a nudge in the right direction or at least what he would have conceived of as the right direction i agree but but i do think to some degree he believed in it more than he was leading on i think the 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 issue with him and king henry the eighth is that he believed that to achieve utopia was to have reform from within so I think he saw leaving the Catholic Church as a step back because now you're going to deal with um, another church, another set of ideas, and Europe is going to be broken down into all these religious sects that are going to fight each other, and they'll never be utopia. So I think he saw unity as the first step towards utopia. Well, I think another part of that is, you know, and I think this is kind of like supported by what he says or but why, but by what Raphael says in book one is that, you know, without addressing the material concerns of the people, you're not going to get this kind of like ideological change that that Henry's trying to force down the throats of the people by saying like, well, now we all need to believe this. I was like, well, why would they listen to you when they're starving? Like, unless you're going to address the, the material forces that generally end up moving human society, that's kind of the, the what's required to set up the ideological change, the, the, the change in belief that can only really happen. What's that, what's that quote that says, um, uh, feed men and then ask of them virtue? Some, some philosopher said that one time, and I think it's a, it's a really good point. It's like, take care of people first, then ask them to think. Because when they're not taken care of, it's very hard for them to think in a rational or virtuous way. I agree, 
But I'm going to take a little, a slightly different spin on that, Brother Axel, because I think what he sets up in Utopia is the real solution to income inequality. So like we said, we're here 500 years later, people arguing the same thing, except everybody has a cell phone now and everybody has access to things that they couldn't even imagine 500 years ago. Nevertheless, it's a constant division in humanity. I mean, this is what Karl Marx writes about um, in his manifesto. You know, this is this is the dialect the dialectics of the rich and the poor eating each other constantly. And we find it today, and it's really getting quite pronounced now in, in, in politics, you know, this idea that the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. Some ways that's true, in some ways it's, it's completely false. Nevertheless, Utopia addresses this, and it says we need to devalue the things that va- people value today that mm-hmm. shouldn't be valued. Yeah. So by pissing in a pot of gold... You know, by giving kids the jewelry, we devalue those things that are vain and unbecoming. Mm-hmm. And I think this is where masonry comes into this perspective because masonry does exactly the same thing. It brings you into a society where jewels and goods and monies are not the things that determine who you are in the organization. Mm-hmm. Just as we've mentioned on another show, I believe it was FDR, president of the United States, was initiated. Uh, in a lodge in which the master of the lodge was his gardener, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Those are the things that, that Utopia deals with. It's like, you know, uh, taking money from the rich, eating the rich, you'll just create a new rich. Mm-hmm. It's dialectics. Mm-hmm. You can't end this this cycle unless people stop valuing what they think they should value and really value what's important. And I think Freemasonry is an institution that tries to bring everything back on the level and destroy vanity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's it's what you say is I think a very important point because I've I've witnessed that personally that um, you know that effect that masonry can have on people from different walks of life in, in society, um, leveling them completely within a Masonic lodge. People that wouldn't I I, and I especially notice this you know as kind of a, a, a younger person joining co masonry that I come in contact with people that I would never have met in my regular kind of like, you know, late twenties life, my millennial life. Like I would never have come into contact with, you know, 75 year old immigrants from Chile. Like that's just, that's not going to enter my social sphere, but I am now enriched by having met these people that would not have otherwise entered my life. And I think that's one of the keys of Freemasonry and how it affects things in the real world is that it, it puts people together that would have no, you know, business under the, dogmas and social kind of forms of outer society it would have no business meeting and discussing and and interacting in any way but in a masonic lodge they're in this kind of no place this utopia bubble that doesn't really exist in regular space and time right we're in the tiled lodge that's outside of regular society where we can come together and have these exchanges and i think that to me that's that's the purpose of of a utopia is you create this no place that is a place that you can go into with your mind and think about things and then come back into your world and see what you can do to kind of bring back the points that you agree with into reality. The goal of masonry is to bring humility, to make people realize they are not as important as they think they are. uh, And the things that they value is probably things that society has dictated to them. So it's deprogramming people to really value what's important, which is brotherhood which is unity, which is helping one another. And that was the island of Utopia. It was a place of of mutual respect, mutual assistance to one another. It was a place that gold couldn't buy you anything. Mm -hmm. And the fact of the matter is that in real Freemasonry, gold doesn't get you anything. You can't buy your way to the top. You can't buy your way into it. It's a place free of the dominion of vanity. And I think this book, Utopia, sets the foundation of speculative Freemasonry. I think it's establishing the ideas of utopia inside the lodge setting, like you were saying. The lodge of of the world are all utopias. They're little minor utopias. And in some ways, all the little lodges are like the households on the island. Mm -hmm. Made up of what? They said the, the households in utopia were between 10 and 16 people. And the fact of the matter is any lodge that's really bigger than 20 people is gonna be a disaster. You can't have big lodges. These mailcraft lodges with 300 people, well, frankly, 300 people don't even show up. But 
they're 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 not what it was meant to be. Because how do you in three hundred people? How do you know each other? Yeah. How is there brotherhood? Mm-hmm. You can have brotherhood with a small group of people. So I think lodges are like the households, right? And the warehouses is is the Grand Lodge. It's the infrastructure. Yeah. Now, that's all been degraded today because I think the, the modern Grand Lodges have all been infected with so much vanity that they're all looking for more gold in order to prop themselves up. I mean, not to be mean here, but I think that's what we see because now that's what they value. So there's another idea that utopia could represent that I think, you know, it would be a great way to conclude this podcast. And it has to do with something I think that was put forward by Manly P. Hall. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. So you read this idea in The Secret Destiny of America, which was a work that uh, Manly P. Hall released in the mid 20th century, I think, about um, how America and the founding of America was intended as a kind of occult experiment to advance human civilization. And America is utopia. And it's, it's funny because utopia is in the new world, according mm-hmm. to Sir Thomas More. And so one idea that Manly P. Hall puts forth, I mean, he's, and he's also talking about Sir Francis Bacon and all these other occultists, is that somewhere beyond the frontiers of Europe, of the old world, there will be a new city on the hill, you mm-hmm. know, a city of God. A place where everyone's equal, there's free religion, there's free speech, and people don't value gold and silver and all these things, and it'll be a utopia. And in some ways, it came to happen. The American experiment, the American republic that was forged, in many ways mimicked many of the aspects of utopia. Sure, it had many imperfections, like slavery. Well, utopia had slavery, frankly. Mm-hmm. So Because as much as people want to you know, condemn the people of the past. Slavery was a very ordinary function in in the 15th century, and it was an ordinary function going back thousands of years mm-hmm. in Europe, Africa, the Middle East, Asia. It was just commonplace. Slavery is condemned today, but it was very normal back then. So the American Republic very much represents this utopia. This this no place. It actually came to be, and I I, I would I would bet money today that if Sir Thomas More uh, was alive and saw what happened in the new world, he would think it was a good thing. And I think if we put it through this lens, we can say that perhaps he's a prophet. Well, that's kind of the idea that, you know, he, he and Sir Francis Bacon are kind of like, and and I wonder too, you know, this is personal speculation, but I wonder how often this happens in history that you kind of like, when you're on the verge of these historical changes in the world, that there are these kind of like prophets that start to see what could be possible in the, in the near mm-hmm. future, right? Because they knew the new world exists. It's not like they had just, you know, imagined the entire continent of the Americas just completely out of whole cloth. Like they knew that there was land over there, but I wonder if like, if it's kind of revealed these thought forms to them, like, you know, the new Atlantis and utopia, or if they're actually setting themselves either wittingly or unwittingly as authors of the future by putting forward works like this. So like, I wonder to what extent the idea of shaping the possible future of the new world played into Thomas More's thought process when he's composing this book. Like, is it just kind of like a vision he had in, in one of his meditations or is he trying to introduce a certain set of ideas, a thought form, if you will, into a society that he imagines could eventually act upon it in this kind of like, you know, virgin territory of the new world. I don't think we'll ever know. But in my opinion, uh, I think he he foresaw it. I think, I think it was a vision to him. There were other people envisioning something like America happening. This idea of a republic with, with all the freedoms that we enjoy. And, you know... Today, America isn't quite the shining star that it once was, but there can be no doubt that in, you know, in, in 1776, when that, that Declaration of Independence was signed, that the novelty of the ideas that would ensue became entrenched in human consciousness. It's forever altered the way we view the world. And for sure, America is yet another empire that will fall at some point and hopefully be replaced by something better when that time comes. But 
I think Sir Thomas More, I think Sir Francis Bacon, and, and a lot of religious people see America as sort of God's, you know, plan unfolding on Earth. Um, there can be no doubt in my mind that it was it was a moment of utopia. Maybe just for a moment. Maybe it was just an equinox. You know, we we couldn't hold on to it. But the idea, the consciousness, the spirit of it all was right there, and it happened. And it can never be erased from history. And you can kind of see this uh, this spirit in the uh, utopian political organization. Obviously, the the libertarian in me rejoiced at, at the line of uh, or the concept that anybody that wants to run for political office or wants to be in charge is immediately disqualified from holding those positions mm-hmm. in utopia. Only only those who truly desire to serve are allowed to do so. Anybody that seeks after office or power is immediately disqualified and never given the opportunity to do so. And I think people today think that's a good idea, but we act opposite. We still mm-hmm. keep electing the same type of people uh, to positions. You know, I, I think as a final point here, we need to talk about what is perfection. Um, Masonry is not trying to establish a perfect society. Masonry doesn't have a plan for how society should be run. Um, it tries to set an example of what perfection is. It tries to establish the virtues by which we should interact with one another in a lodge so that we can carry those out to the world. But Masonry um, does not have this like global plan of how to create a one world new order in order to make everybody perfect. That's nonsense. You're going to see that on YouTube, but it's nonsense. <laughs> you know, and as much as we associate the word utopia now with this kind of like imagining of a perfect place, um, I don't think that Sir Thomas More was really trying to describe a perfect place either. You know, I think what his purpose in writing Utopia was, was to kind of break the medieval shackles that were holding the European mind in place. I think, I think what he saw in the New World was an opportunity to realize, you know, for him, probably the Catholic plan of, of human life, that, you know, organizing society along those kinds of lines. But I think his main goal in doing this, because especially that he says, you know, I don't agree with any, much of this stuff at the end, was really to just get people thinking along different lines than had prevailed. Like thought changed very slowly in the medieval world. And these are radical concepts. And maybe he is just covering his butt by saying, you know, I don't really believe in much of this stuff. But I think what he was trying to accomplish was to move the minds of people. Like he could kind of sense this current of thought emerging with the discovery of this new world. He knew that there would be an opportunity for new ways of living that would emerge. And I think by putting forward something like utopia and reminding people that this doesn't exist, this is no place, but we can make it a place. We could, we could start to work towards a more perfect society, right? Because be- utopia is not perfect. But it's more perfect, at least, you know, in the way that he puts it forward. It's more perfect in in many ways than the Europe that he inhabited that's racked by poverty and constant war and greed and avarice and all these things that don't exist in Utopia. Utopia's got its own set of problems, you know, for the reader to discover. But I think, like, you know, pushing forward a little bit on the momentum of progress is what he was trying to do here. Yeah, I agree. I don't think he's trying to set up a perfect society. I don't, I don't interpret it that way at all. Um, more to the point, I think masonry, um, as a final lesson here, tells us to beware of people preaching perfection. You know, all, all, all the regimes over the last centuries that have all tried to create a perfect society has ended in complete bloodshed. From the Nazis to the communists uh, to any of the utopian philosophies that were implemented— killed a lot of people. They were terrible. They were the opposite of perfection. So I think Masonry tells us, beware of utopian paradises. They don't exist. They're fallacies. And the only way to even attempt to to bring them about is by force and force alone. The only way we can get to this idea of utopia that Sir Thomas More puts forth is by changing the way we think by changing our consciousness by by forgetting the unimportant and and remembering what is important in our everyday lives and i think masonry exactly has that lesson for us because like i said you go through history you read about any of these people trying to create a perfect society it doesn't end well for anybody 
Yeah, I think Freemasonry, Utopia, and and really the kind of the philosophical conversation that's been happening um, throughout history is really all about. And, and even though like, you know, each step along the way is like, well, I think this would be perfect. Well, I think this would be perfect. I think where where Masonry kind of transcends that is like there is a general process of improvement happening that we can assist with. But the moment we kind of like step out of that historical stream and say, I figured everything out. Human progress stops here. This is the best it could possibly ever be. I, I think Masonry recognizes the inherent fallacy in that and, and the fact that like that's not actually possible. What is possible is recognizing that there is going to be a constant improving and that to get attached to one particular form or another kind of strands you in place historically. Whereas what you can actually do to contribute to the perfecting, not the perfection, but the perfecting of humanity is to constantly be thinking of new no places, new places that don't exist yet, but that could. And, that, and, and moving ever so slightly generation after generation in that direction and never stopping and saying we've progressed enough, we've developed enough, we've evolved enough. And ultimately, I think Masonry provides... Um the environment that people can act utopian because the, the utopian ideas begins with me begins with you begins with individuals you know masonry is a volunteer organization it's one of the biggest stresses it's volunteerism right nothing can be accomplished unless people come together mutually and any utopian effort that is is attempted that would ever really succeed has to start from right there. It has to be done because it's of your own free will and accord. And I think that's, that's how every initiate comes and knocks on the door. And that's the beginning of improving ourselves because ultimately we could create a utopia within ourselves. Maybe we can't do it out in the world, but I can do it with inside myself. I, I can make my brain, my heart, everything that I am work in harmony and peace and not live a contradiction every day. Thank you for listening to Legends of the Craft. This podcast is purely the opinion of brothers Matthias Comcier and Axel Suvari, and does not represent the official views of Universal Comasonry. Universal Comasonry is a Masonic order founded on the principles of liberty, equality, and fraternity that admits men and women without distinction of race, religion, or creed. For more information, please visit universalfreemasonry.org.